In today's episode of the Amon Wire podcast, the university is not necessarily is not a place that is supposed to be exclusionary or hostile or you know not have a space for the sacred. Everyone's coming with a certain approach. Everyone's coming with a certain objective. Everyone's coming with a certain idea, and we have a right to have ideas too. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to another episode of the Iman Wire podcast. I'm Muhammad Salim from Iman Wire. Uh, today, uh, we have uh, two guests with us uh, in the studio. Uh, I'm joined by uh, Rashid Dar, who is a uh, research assistant at a think tank in Washington, D.C., who had also uh, received his master's in, uh, in policy in uh, at Columbia University. And our other guest is uh, Ibad, uh, Ibad Rahman who is pursuing a PhD in the religion department in Columbia and also has uh, has uh, studied um, with uh, traditional ulama as well. We're here today basically to have a, a conversation about some of the experiences, some of the challenges that you've actually faced um, and the challenges that I think probably will resonate with a lot of young Muslim students in, uh, in academia and also in other um, organizations. So, I mean, let's begin there. I mean, like Rashid... Uh, uh, maybe you can start us off with maybe some of your experiences or, you know, in, in, in academics and in, in your current work. And uh, maybe we could just, we'll just start from there. Sure. Um, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Um, so, yeah, uh, as for myself, so I guess to condense everything as quickly as one can. And um, I was born uh, near Chicago, uh, moved to Wisconsin when I was six, ended up going to high school there, college at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And uh, I grew up probably, I, I didn't have any Muslim friends aside from my younger brother and like this one kid who moved to our neighborhood for about two years and then he was gone after that. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I got to college, it was really my first interaction uh, with a large number of Muslims on campus. Um, and, you know, prior to that, I, you know, I prayed and from a young age, did all my five daily prayers and um, went to the masjid when I could and uh, but after 9-11 happened when I was in seventh grade, uh, I took a, a renewed interest uh, in my religion. I remember actually spending my those early years after 9-11, I uh, spent a lot of time on message boards, where, which were actually for Nintendo and video games and stuff. I was really into The Legend of Zelda. I, and we would have general discussion boards, and I'd actually end up debating or defending uh, my religion, uh, problematic verses, as they say, this and that. I went on to, uh, uh, basically I went to college, had my first interaction with Muslims. I uh, uh, very quickly became involved in the MSA. I was elected president for my junior year and my senior year. Um, Had the chance to study with some uh, really great um, Muslim academics who are also practicing in the personal life. So that was a very good inspiration for me. Um, uh, something that I continued forward and uh, with and uh, with their help and guidance. After that, I graduated. I didn't really know what I was doing because I majored in international affairs from Wisconsin. And I don't know, there's just not a lot of jobs in that field in Wisconsin, you know. And so I uh, spent a couple of years bouncing here and there, odd jobs, nothing salaried, just volunteering. I decided I would apply to law school because that's what a lost humanities major does. Um, and then, uh, so I got into law school and was like, I don't think I want to be in law school. So then I you know, waited another year, did some more odd jobs and ended up taking the GRE and then getting into policy school at Columbia. I still had a year left to go. So 
Uh, in that year, I enrolled at a small um, seminary type program uh, called in near Chicago called uh, Darul Qasim. So that's the name of the school, rather. Um, and so I studied Arabic and fiqh and uh, history and grammar and tasawwuf and a number of subjects under various mashayikh there uh, traditionally. Um, after that, and got married that summer, and from our honeymoon, started grad school. Two years after two years of grad school at Columbia, uh, I uh, I had a small job uh, in a peace mediation effort uh, after after policy school. I started at a think tank uh, uh, shortly after graduate school was over in the fall, um, and I've been there ever since. So it's coming up on a year and a half now, and uh, that's kind of my story in a nutshell. To go back uh, 30 years ago, my mom, my mom gave birth to me. <laughs> <laughs> We're going way back today. <laughs> yeah, Bellevue yeah. Hospital, 27th Street and 1st Avenue in Manhattan. My mom and older sister came from Bangladesh in 1986. I was born in 87. My dad came in the early 80s from Bangladesh. Um, growing up, alhamdulillah, my dad was in the Tabligi Jamaat and we grew up with, you know, praying at home learning to read Arabic, learning to read Quran. Um, my dad, very interestingly, would have our local imam come to our home and tutor us as opposed to sending us to the masjid on Saturdays and Sundays. But uh, we learned some Arabic. Our imam would come and teach us from Riyadh Salihin. We would read some tafsir we, uh, in English. Um, and we learned some Arabic language at home growing up. I've memorized Quran in high school when I'm 15. I'm, you know, co-president of the MSA. You know, someone brings a tape of Imam Zaid and Sheikh Hamza speaking at Madison Square Garden. That puts Z them on the map for me um, and Zaytuna on the map for me. And then I graduated high school in 2004. I go to the Zaytuna Pida Seminary Program. 2004, I'm part of, a, you know, we start with three students. I'm there for four years, graduate 2008. I come back to New York start at City College in New York, and then start at NYU. I do a bachelor's degree. Remember, Zaytun is unaccredited at the time. And I do that for four years from 2009 to 2013. And then I, uh, with a little detour in Chicago, I apply to grad school and begin a PhD program in the religion department, September 2014. You know, Ibad, now you're, uh, you're in you're in academia uh, as studying religion, and uh, a lot of uh, Muslims are um, embarking on that same journey, um, some of whom have uh, a background of already studying with, uh, with ulama and imams, some of, whom, some, and some of them who don't. Um, so I'd like to sort of begin our discussion there in terms of the challenges uh, that young Muslims face in uh, in academia, and I, I wanted to share actually a uh, a message I received um, from someone in um, in academics, uh, a Muslim, and uh, and this is what they said about sort of their frustrations with academia and. This individual calls it liberal academia. So I'm just going to give you an excerpt of it, and this is it. He says, liberal academia is not the way you would expect it to be. There is too much hypocrisy and serious limits on freedom of thought. I'm afraid to write sometimes to express my views in other forums because I feel it would change the opinion of most of my uh, professors about me, and I'm afraid of its repercussions. And someone in the sec in, in secular academia would find that if I was, for example, to call to reconnecting with authentic Islamic tradition and uh, and, and traditional scholarship, 
and to follow the tradition as a way of to guide the Muslim ummah, uh, they would find that call unacceptable and question my presence in liberal academia. So when I read this, it's not something that I've heard for the first time. There is a definite concern that you, know, you feel muzzled being in academia, um, especially before you are finished your degree. And even then, until you're tenured, you always have that concern. You know, you're concerned, of course, about your livelihood. You don't want to uh, lose um, the, the hard work that you've accrued up to that point. Let's start from there and, and your thoughts on that. And does some of that ring true to you in your experiences? Disclaimer, I'm, I'm not in academia right now. I work at a think tank, which is a very different institution than a university. But um, what I will say is that um, the individual who wrote you that that message, uh, he used the term liberal academia. And the thing is, I, I found that interesting because I think the academy won't call itself the liberal academy. He's describing it that way. Um, they call themselves simply the academy. And the thing about liberalism um, that I have found is that liberalism is often a force that goes unnamed. It is, uh, one might even say, an ideology that goes unnamed. Um, and it, you see this in other fields as well. So oftentimes people, when they say, we're going to bring democracy to another country, mm -hmm. right? Um, what they really are saying underneath that and what the assumption is, the unspoken assumption is, we're going to bring liberal democracy to this country. And, and what we've seen, uh, whether in 2006 when Hamas was elected um, in Palestine, um, where the democratic outcome was not to um, the liking of the West, and what we saw in Egypt with the uh, election of the Muslim Brotherhood in 2000 or 2011, um, that the coup against them in 2013 was kind of winked at uh, by the United States and others. Um, and I feel that it is because the Brotherhood was seen as this illiberal force. Now, why do I bring these things up in a conversation about academia? Is to simply say that oftentimes I think what liberals do is and what liberalism does. And I don't mean to say that I'm not necessarily a liberal. I might be liberal in some things. I might not be liberal in other things, though. Right. It. Uh, I think without announcing itself, oftentimes will attach itself to certain institutions, to certain ideas, to certain modes of thought. Um, and I think the problem facing Muslims in academia or in think tanks or these other places is that um, there are many kinds of uh, crossroads uh, where they have to decide, you know, the uh, consensus on certain issues may in fact be illiberal. And you can choose, you can have, there are a smattering of issues we can talk about, and I don't think that's what we're here to talk about today, but whether it's a stance on homosexuality, whether, you know, what women are required to wear, um, what uh, uh, penal punishments are, um, these sorts of things are seen to be out of touch with the modern world, right? And again, when people say modern, that's another term that is often loaded to mean the liberal modern world, the modern liberal world. So... Really, I think, um, and so just to, I'll finish my comment here. So when people in the academy, when they talk about you need to be objective, objectivity is supposedly this place, this neutral place that you're coming from, this detached place. There is an assumption that, uh, what you've seen with the president, with the election of President Trump, is that um, you've, you've seen, you've, you are seeing somebody who has many illiberal stances 
come to power. Stances that one might say are against the Constitution. Stances that uh, are maybe uh, leaning towards a you know, sort of dictatorial nature. Um, and this riles up uh, a liberal establishment. And it kind of shows that what they're fighting for isn't necessarily universal, isn't necessarily objectively true, isn't necessarily all, isn't something that every single human being naturally wants. Clearly, um, a majority of the electoral college votes went to Donald Trump. Um, And so I think the the academy, politics, all these fields are now kind of in a state of, uh, uh, you could say, a kind of a crisis. Because now they're forced to think to themselves, how did this happen? How did so many people, not just in, we're seeing in America, the rise of the far right in Europe, people are asking themselves, is, is liberalism truly a universal force? Is it, the, is, it the, uh, is it what every human being wants? And we're, now we can have the conversation about it. Uh, and I think that's where we're going to go. Let me start this way. If a young person today wanted to learn more about their faith, where could they go? There's current academia, right? I, I'm not saying that uh, Muslims uh, are going to learn Islam by going into academia, but uh, many think they will. Or you go into some traditional uh, type of Islamic schooling. Right. Whether that resource is available to you in your areas, of, you know, that's, that's obviously, uh, there's issues in access to that. Right. So those are pretty much your options right now, at least. Right. And there was options, right? When we hear the stories of Yahya Rodas and other people, you know, my friend Justin Benavides, Murabit, others who converted in the 90s or before that, you hear about the Shuyukh and, you know, Dr. Omar, Sheikh Hamza, Imam Zaid, you know, Imam Siraj, others um, who, Imam Muhammad Sharif, other, they, who, after they converted to Islam, um, they went abroad. Right, they went to places like Syria, like Imam Zaid, which is probably not an option for many people anymore. Um, Egypt is messy, right? Yes, I think you, we would agree, especially in our current climate, that going abroad for Islamic studies, the the areas where you can go is um, limited. Much is more limited. limited is limited. There's still before. options, and there's option. You know, Dr. Rajab here, Shenturk has this Ibn Khaldun University that he's setting up. Um, there are options when one can go to a, like a Darul type madrasa. One, there are, uh, you know, Malaysia, potentially Islamic University there. There's, there's uh, a, a b- bunch of options, Medina University. There's different places, South Africa. There's different places one can go. But to your question about the challenges, if one decides to pursue Islamic studies at the university, you know, this is an interesting question. I won't deny that there are challenges. Uh, but I also want to be careful about overgeneralizing. Um, I think some places can be, as Rashid was saying, some places of higher education, uh, which is ironic because it's supposed to be a place of higher education, um, can be very hostile to faith. That's the current time and moment that we live uh, in, in regarding, especially in formerly uh, what was a majority where we had much uh, greater numbers of Christians and later Jews, namely in this part of the world, um, who created seminaries, right? People forget that Harvard, you know, these colleges were established as as seminaries, as places to train ministers. 
And it's interesting, you know, John Sexton, the president emeritus at NYU, um, he wrote his PhD at Fordham University about Charles Eliot. And you can look his dissertation up on ProQuest, you know, it's like three, 400 pages about the president of Harvard University or college for 40 years, who was a Unitarian, who went to Europe and looked at the research university and came back and made some adjustments to Harvard from being, as far as I understand, a religious college to becoming a research university. And he was Unitarian, not necessarily, not anti-faith, anti-religious. This is in the 1800s. And obviously there's with World War One, World War Two, uh, after that, just this moment in American history, um, there's a huge question in people's relationship with faith, um, largely speaking, right? But I want to emphasize that there are places like Fordham University, Georgetown, right, that are built on a Jesuit tradition um, where faith is prized and valued and seen and rigor, academic rigor is brought to it, but they have, the Catholic tradition has some of the most amazing philosophers, uh, believing philosophers today, right? Alistair McIntyre, uh, Charles Taylor, you know, these are when Wael Halak writes about modernity, I mean, or Talal Asad for that matter at CUNY grad, these are the philosophers he is drawing from, McIntyre, Taylor, and so it's interesting in terms of there's a larger contestation about faith. It's one thing if you want to be in a space where your faith is never challenged. Mm -hmm. um, the university is probably not very uh, – university in general will challenge you. And I, I don't think all challenges are bad, right? I think there's a point to being questioned to strengthen your faith. And – one of our teachers says, you know, Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah, that it's not wrong to have questions. It's wrong not to seek answers. And so if you take that approach, ask questions. You know, philosophy classes are going to bring up all sorts of questions. And there's a question about what's the state of Muslim education? You know, what are people getting at the Friday sermons? What are people getting at the Sunday schools? Whatever, you know, who who's training the next generation of, of khutaba, of khatibs, of imams, of, you know, that are going to, that can enter this arena, which can be hostile to faith, with, with intellectual, you know, armor. Can I add one thing? Yeah. So I think, um, so I have three points. First point is that... Um, my understanding, and Ibad can correct me if I'm wrong, but the academy um, in its, uh, the way it approaches truth is through what they call this objective. And I say truth in quotation marks. Um, but you're also generalizing yeah, about I'm, the academy. Yeah, I am generalizing, but I think it would be fair to say that most of, in the Western academy, um, there's no scenario in which someone is going to say, hey, we've actually investigated and I'm going to take the prophet as true, right? As some kind of truly sent messenger from God, who I also believe to be to to exist. You're saying no right? academic would ever say that. I mean, no, no, as an academic speaking as an academic, right? Um, and writing a paper about it, right? And what do you do with the Christian philosophers? I mean, are they publishing in like, like religion journals yeah. or something? Totally. I mean, I mean, it's like study the study of religion, like the anthropology of religion. 
there's tension between religion departments as they are now yeah. and seminaries. And I think a seminary is different from what I'm speaking about. Right. But even in religion departments, there are believers. I'm sure there are, you can be a believer. Yeah. Right? And assert your faith but academically. I'm saying like to take that as an assumption, right? Like, for instance, I assume God exists and I assume the prophet is true. Now let me write my article, right? Yeah, I think in general, like, if you come in and say, and, and come in with a conf- confessional, devotional uh, identity that, you know, I believe this to be the word, the Quran to be the word of God, These are the for example, that I work uh, the, the, the general, perhaps the general idea is that, well, in, in, in the academic realm, no, you can't come in with that, um, that supposition mm-hmm. uh, or belief. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, well, it's also, and it's, it's seen also almost as a weakness. It's also to, that uh, the belief in God can't be proven through the five senses, right? It's not something that I can, I, I can, I can empirically show you. But right? that's a problem with scientism, and of that's course. a problem with. But I think that's empiricism. part of the, that's part of the assumptions that that go into how knowledge is pursued. Would you disagree? I mean, I, again, I think seminaries are different. Are different. Right. Schools. So let me. Uh, I mean, I can't. I. I I, but you know, I think it's very interesting actually to hear your points about this because I, I think uh, to hear that there are areas in um, certain um, academic circles where it is it isn't as 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 bad as we, we we may think that there is some areas where you find that support you'll find that Absolutely. that openness. Absolutely. So let me. I mean, I hesitate. I, I can't speak about everyone and everybody and all institutions. Sure, and uh, sure of course. That's we, we a caveat. Right? So I'd like to uh, make it more personal, right? And talk about my own experiences and who I studied with and how faith was approached. So in my junior year of uh, at NYU in 2002, I took a class with the president of New York University, John Sexton. He teaches this class. Again, I mentioned he did the PhD at Fordham. He wrote about Unitarian president of Harvard. And then he went to Harvard Law School and then became dean of NYU Law and then president in 2002. Um, He is one of the few, was one of the few university presidents that would teach a class while serving as president. He taught four classes a year. One of the classes he taught was baseball as a road to God. And subsequently, this came out as a book. You can find it for one cent on Amazon. Um, I highly recommend it. Uh, And it's called Looking Beyond the Game. And this was a class that I took in my junior year in 2002. And later, I TA'd for him for that same class in 2013. When I hesitated and questioned taking that class, Imam Khalid Latif, the chaplain at NYU, told me, John... When you're around John, you really feel that he believes in God. He's a devout believer. And you can, you can look up the interviews with John Sexton, especially the one on, with Bill Moyer on PBS. But also when his wife Lisa passed away, according to Khalid, John became even more vocal about his own faith and belief. But this is in the, if you look in the book, he references C.S. Lewis, he references Tolkien, you know, at Oxford, and these guys who encountered also, you know, Marxism, the challenge of, challenges to faith, challenges to how do you explain all the suffering? World War II happened. I mean, many Jews ask this question, where is God? How did God allow the Holocaust to happen? And I think many Muslims who have been colonized or experienced colonialization, also, if not explicitly, I think this is this is there. Like the, this is a big question: the problem of evil, 
right? The Odyssey. And Sherman Jackson has the book, Islam and the Problem of Black Suffering, um, which is a remarkable attempt at, at tackling this question from four theological Islamic schools. But my point is that you have John Sexton teaching this course in a creative angle, baseball as a road to God. And he, for John, um, the university is not necessarily, is not a place that is supposed to be exclusionary or hostile or, you know, not have a space for the sacred, right? Um, and so I'll, I'll, I'll give that as an example. It might not be representative of all university presidents, and it might not be representative of academ academia and the academy, but I think one example that's very, in, you know, it's very, um, obviously personally tied to this, um, and but it's a space that I feel that allowed me to be in a space where, because he uh, makes the argument, argument from experience. And I gave him Imam Ghazali's Munqid min al-Dalal, difference from error, because I think Imam Ghazali also, he makes an argument in the end of the day is about dhawq. It's about experience. You can never explain to someone with words what honey tastes like until you actually taste honey yourself or ice cream or pleasure or love. Words have limits. And there's something, John, John's favorite words, the ineffable, you know, that which cannot be put to words. So I think there's an he's making an argument for experience, you know, beyond the senses, beyond just physicality, beyond scientism. For sure, but you would say that it's, um, it's still an argument that has to be made, and he might be one of the few, if not maybe the only one, making that kind of argument. I would say the deck is kind of stacked against a person who would come in saying, hey, based on, let's say I came in. Uh, I'm uh, giving my job talk, newly minted PhD. And they say, hey, you know what? I'm just going to let you all know on this committee, hiring committee, I had a lot of thok growing up and uh, I have this experience. I am a believer in God and I come through and I'm also going to teach Islamic studies at university. I mean, at least I hope to, yeah? I think as it stands right now, um, that would be a difficult proposition to make in most in most schools, if you came out guns blazing like that, yeah? I mean, but look, maybe, again, this is, for me, I see it as, this has been my experience, maybe, yeah, maybe, I mean, and I think it's an ongoing conversation. Sure. I mean, it is an uphill battle, I think, at the very least. Muslims being in Western institutions is a new thing, mm -hmm. right? I, I would say, I mean, that's just the history, right? Before a certain period, you didn't have Muslim academics at Harvard or Ch University of Chicago or USC, but now you have Sherman Jackson at USC, you have Ahmed Shamsi at the University of Chicago, you have, you had Shahab Ahmed at Harvard, you have, you have a, many, many Muslim academics who are devout believers, as far as I know, um, who, yes, there's challenges to what is expected of the academic in the role as a professor in the space of the classroom, um, but as far as I know, these folks are also believers who also, especially prime example, Sherman Jackson, is very much tied with the Muslim community and invested in the Muslim community. And also, he's writing a book like Islam and Black American, Islam and Problem Black Suffering, but Sufis for Non-Sufis. These things, he came out into the community after his 10-year appointment. Yeah. Right. 
Totally. So yeah, I think this yeah. is the point we're making, right? That until that point comes, and as we know in academia, tenure is like winning the lottery, right? Even getting a job is like winning the lottery for the most part, at least the way academia is today. It's very, I mean, I have friends of mine who said, you know, I applied for this job, this professorship, tenure track professorship, 400 people applied for it. Yeah, very competitive. Very normal, right? And 400 people with PhDs mm-hmm. who spent six, seven years just like you did, right? Who worked very hard too. It's not easy, right? Uh, and so, you know, and then once you even get the job, then it's maybe one or two books that you have to write and then you're up for tenure. And then it's either a thumbs up, thumbs down, right? right? So, those are, yeah. just, those are all academic production questions about yeah. rigor of your work. You really think the tenure process is solely about the rigor of one's not work? Solely. You don't think I'm it's not saying so. by politics? I'm saying that's hard work. Yeah, if you're going to enter, if you're going to try to play, become a professor at the university, I mean, it's not for the weak-hearted. Of course it's, not. It's, yeah. No one's saying it you're is. You're going to have to, yeah, produce academic articles and books, and it's a it's a hard process. So I, just, just two more points. I, I will go very fast. Um, is that I would also take issue with what you said about uh, if you don't want your – if you don't want to be challenged, I know it is probably just a turn of phrase, but I do think that if you go into like a madrasa system, if you go into more traditional mode of learning, you will be challenged. In fact, I mean, we have examples in the past where Kalam scholars, their faith is challenged, right? Um, they're going through and they're diving deep into theology. What's not challenged is that the fact that the prophet is true and that God exists, these things are taken as assumptions. Wait, but, but in how terms do you talk of, to someone who, my neighbor doesn't believe in God? Well, this is a concern for you yeah. because you're living in America, right? Yeah, I'm New saying, York City. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm saying that there is a certain type of, there's a, it's a different type of challenge, right? Yeah. There are different challenges we're all interested in. Right. And sure. I think the mother is interested in other challenges. Right. Right. And I would also say that I would agree with you. So that's my other point. The other third point I would make is that uh, I would agree with you that generally speaking throughout the Muslim world today, our institutions of higher education, of traditional higher education are in a state of crisis for the most part. Um, that's not to say that there aren't true scholars existing today. There certainly are. And I encourage everyone to go out and seek them and take from them and benefit from them. But with that said, I think we've, uh, you know, I'm not going to go into a history lesson, but we know through the period, through uh, colonialism, through uh, the, the, the nation states that took after, that took, uh, took over after colonialism, many of the OCOF that a lot of our institutions of higher education ran on, mm-hmm. um, these were gutted or nationalized mm-hmm. or privatized mm-hmm. or sold off. Absolutely. Um, so let me tell you, if, I, if someone came to Harvard University, great mm-hmm. school, right? Mm-hmm. And let's say I take away their like $58 billion endowment. And I say, mine now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I say, but now start over, right? Mm-hmm. And then I come to you like 50 years later yeah. and I say, Where's uh, where's all the academics? Yeah. Why don't you guys? Why aren't you guys doing anything? This was Khalid Abdul Fadl's point at Princeton yeah. at that lecture we attended when yeah. the book came out, Reasoning yeah. with God. Yeah, 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 totally. And it's like, why, why, you know, I, I, I think that we just have to keep these things in mind. I understand. I'm not trying to sit here and tell you that, you know, mother's education is like the gold standard or something, or even that liberal academia is the gold standard. I'm only just, let's just, point. we have to see the structural issues affecting these institutions. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, Sheikh Omar Qureshi from Loyola University, uh, dear teacher of mine, he raises this question though, um, and others raise this question too. Like I totally agree with the point that a serious, mantiq, nahu, kalam-based education, aqli-based education uh, education, Islamic, traditional Islamic education, classical Islamic education that is especially aqli focused does train the mind to deal with objections. And this is all over 
especially the Kalam literature, where people deal with the supposition, hypothetical. How do you respond to this? If it said that, how do you respond? And that's great intellectual work, which, yes, absolutely. I think Muslims, there's a treasure trove and greatness of tradition there that we ought to appreciate. There still remains the question, though, and the Sheikh Omar Qureshi raises this, is, great, where are the responses to modern philosophy? There are responses, namely Taha Abdurrahman, for example, right, that Wahid Halal Columbia highlights and is writing a book on. Um, but this is, a, and there, yes, the breakdown and crisis of the institutions and endowments prevents, that's the whole thing about universities today. They have huge endowments. You, I can pay the stipend to come to class, to read books and write, right? I mean, this is what universities do, support graduate students, support professors, fellowships, scholarships. There's all kinds of funding there. And that allows people to devote themselves to scholarship. If you don't have those institutions, um, because of the reasons you mentioned, namely colonialism, wiping this away, or because of an inferiority complex and not seeing any value. Or because of state interference in education in the Muslim world, that's another thing. Absolutely. Bring up. Yeah. Then, I mean, institutionally, there's just not the resources to compete. So it's interesting and encouraging to see the Cambridge Muslim College in England with Abdul Hakim Murad or Sherman Jackson's program at USC, or Hartford Seminary, or Zaytuna College, or Dr. Rajab's program in Istanbul, and what they're trying to do in, certain, in terms of reclaiming knowledge of the Islamic tradition, having academic rigor, uh, but especially also Dr. Rajab's vision, I think, and I think also at Darul Qasim, as we were talking about earlier, also we recognize that Muslim scholars in the past were polymaths. They didn't just stay in a corner of, I just do kalam. Some did. But it, many, Ibn Khaldun, for example, many were polymaths, right? They, I mean, knowledge was, I mean, it, I went through NYU's Gallatin School of Individualized Study. We're all about interdisciplinary studies, right? Not just staying in one, one thing and making connection. So in that sense, what Dr. Rajab's trying to do in terms of Let's bring the social sciences and have them in conversation with traditional Islamic texts and learning of that tradition. I'm fascinated by that idea and eager to see what comes out of it. But I do think that someone who is, I think there's, a, one has to be grounded in the tradition to be able and recognize the value of it to then be, to be equipped to take on modern philosophy. Right. That's the important point here. I think that if you don't go into this realm grounded already, you are in for, number one, a big shock. Number two, your faith could be challenged in ways that you never would have anticipated. So, I mean, like, I think we would probably agree, I think all three of us, that it's it's best, if we were to give advice to people, it's best to be already grounded, at least in the core foundations of the of the religion, before you get into the uh, the academic realm. And I would say that absolutely that there is a need for, uh, for Muslims to be in uh, this academic realm, because to respond to many of these questions, to many of the issues, and also to come up with new, uh, you know, new, new things to discuss. Mm -hmm. Um, I think one of the frustrations, and I speak from somebody outside of acad academia and, and the Muslim community, is that we have so many talented uh, Muslim students who are in this in academia, and you know they go in, even not even just Muslim students, a lot of Muslim professors as well, and 
the community doesn't know who that mm-hmm. who they are. They don't see the service, mm-hmm. or they don't see that there's any service coming out of them. Even though you know they're 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 doing so much in that academic mm-hmm. silo, mm-hmm. but the Muslim community is not really benefiting from many of them. From either number one because of this muzzling that we were talking about before, where you feel reticent to discuss uh, things in a in a broader uh, broader sense to the Muslim community. Um, out of out of fear, for example, in, in the in the academic realm, yes. or that it's just so super specialized that it can't really translate into something that's beneficial for 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 the lay people. I would I, I want to ask you number one as as a Muslim student or your advice for for students in in uh, like as as you are in your position as well as you're, you're currently pursuing your PhD. And I don't know if, if some of them feel this way. They're like, oh, I'm just stuck in, I'm stuck in this state for like, you know, six, five, six or seven years until I can really do stuff and feel like I can really do the community. Because I've met people who, who went into Muslim, uh, Muslims who went into academics with this, this goal that I'm going to go and do this and I'm going to, then I can really help. Um, and while that, that end, end point may occur, it's very difficult for them in that, transition period to just be like, I can't do anything right now. I just have to sort of just stay where I am and, and not, you know, not go, go outside that and, until I can really get to that point, that end point. You know, I, I see this, uh, many, many listeners might know that the University of Chicago's economics program is known to be very market, um, mar- is, is in favor of free markets. It's uh, that if you're free market, like internationalist, uh, pro-business type person, you want to be an economist, I suggest you go to University of Chicago. It's just known to have that bent. Now, that was a process whereby a number of academics went in with a certain agenda, a certain point of view, and they coalesced around a certain institution, mm-hmm. and they made that institution its home. Mm-hmm. And we spoke a lot about, you know, how do you respond to modern, modern philosophy? How do you do these sorts of things? And I see, you know, uh, my when I heard that turn of phrase, I could imagine uh, maybe a, a a secular liberal in Islamic studies freaking out, saying, look, these Muslims are coming into academia and they have an agenda. Now, the response to that is, we do have an agenda. Many people, I might, I'm not in academia, but some people out there might indeed have an agenda, right? They might want to respond from the tradition to modern philosophy. And that, and what I think we need to dis- disabuse people uh, of, uh, we need to disabuse the notion that people that, you know, secular liberals don't have agendas too, right? That there is such a thing that everyone's coming with a certain approach. Everyone's coming with a certain objective. Mm-hmm. Everyone's coming with a certain idea. Mm-hmm. And we have a right to have ideas mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what it really comes mm-hmm. down to mm-hmm. is like, uh, and that might even be the form it takes mm. in the future, whereby, you know, I I have some uh, friends of mine who are at the University of Chicago just incidentally bringing that school up again. You're seeing a lot of uh, a lot of students, PhD students in Islamic studies at the University of Chicago who are also um, uh, active in the community, mm-hmm. who uh, make no show, mm-hmm. they don't hide that at all. Mm-hmm. And maybe it will be, well, Allah, mm-hmm. that the University of Chicago becomes known as a place where it's friendly mm-hmm. yeah. to totally. responses from the tradition totally. for modern questions. Totally. So, I mean, that's, that's a few possible future. Yeah, I think, you know, this is a long-term project, right? And I think I am very optimistic of, I believe in what Dr. Jackson talks about in terms of the power of ideas, and just how influential ideas are. And 
training a generation of scholars who then become professors and go train another generation. Like that's, that's monumental work. And which often in the community is not prized, is not valued, right? Especially by some of our, you know, older generations for whom, you know, econ economic success was, I mean, the typical immigrant story and dream and, you know, their vision, which has, you know, we owe these institutions to the engineers and doctors and all the financial support that they've been able to, you know, gather. And so I, I don't want to just hate on on. On, on, on our uncles and aunties. Um, that being said, I also, yeah, I, I think, yeah, University of Chicago, for example, or Sherman Jackson right now, he has two PhD students at the University of, uh, at the University of Southern California. He's all, both of them are active in the Muslim community and teach and whatnot. It's just an example of, uh, one example of one, of something going on at a particular institution under a particular professor, which I think is very hopeful. And, you know, there's the example Rashid gave of Chicago. I, and, you know, there's also the space of the seminaries, which I don't think we should forget, like Hartford Seminary, like the Bayan Claremont Program, like GTU, um, like Union Theological Seminary in New York, which Jerusalem T has a program in Islam and social justice, for example. So there's all these different programs. There's also all these seminaries, Taysir Seminary, there's other seminaries, there's the mother says that one can go to. There's the Dar al-Qasim. So in terms of equipping oneself, you know, perhaps one takes a year, gap year after high school and goes to Dar al-Qasim and does a one-year program or Taysir and does a one-year program or a longer program and get some, I mean, you need the Arabic language skills uh, if you're going to do anything in Islamic studies. Um, and familiarity with text, I found my advisors and professors really value my study of these texts. Um, it's a type of textual training. It's either, I mean, you know the text or you don't. And you having studied the text, um, my advisor is very um, appreciative of that. I'm not saying this is the case for everybody, but I think there's a recognition that people who have actually studied um, some of these texts and are familiar with them, that that's actually an asset um, as opposed to people who just read secondary literature but have never actually gone through the primary texts that are that are that we're talking about like it's valuable to have read sahih muslim cover to cover or the if you we're talking about the 40 hadith imam nawi which maybe in the muslim community we take for granted um, it might be something very new to someone again who's not coming from a muslim background who first encountered islam maybe in the news or in the academy and then embarked on this study it's a, I think it's a resource, whether Muslim or non-Muslim, to have actually studied, gone cover to cover of the 40 hadith. It's a small example. I think there's a lot of hope for what's, what the upcoming generation can do in terms of the study of Islam. And there's so many options now. The people who went abroad and studied, many of them have returned and are now able to teach and disseminate and pass on what they studied. And they're looking for students. And we have institutions. We're building these institutions. And we have the universities. And I think for someone who is academically minded, willing to bear with the long process, and not everyone needs to do a PhD, um, it's, it's a route that's available. On that note, unfortunately, uh, we've run out of time, so we're going to have to stop here. But, um, you know, 
Uh, certainly, we've only been able to scratch the surface. Uh, this has this conversation has been by no means comprehensive, but I think it served a purpose in in that it can be a conversation starter. Uh, in in you sharing your experiences, hopefully this can be the beginning of a series of conversations on this podcast as well as other forums about this topic of being a believer of being a Muslim in academic and even in a broader context in in certain uh, secular spaces. Uh, so I want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Rasha. Thank you, Ibad. Again, hopefully this is just the beginning, uh, the first in a series of conversations that we can have on this podcast. Um, uh, with you and as well as with others about this topic of uh, Muslims in academia. I want to thank you again for being on the show. Thank you to all the listeners for joining us again. Uh, if you're listening to us on iTunes, please uh, leave a review. Uh, every uh, review helps. Please give us your feedback at uh, Iman Wired on Twitter or email us at imanwire at almadinainstitute.org. We hope to see you again on the next podcast. And assalamu alaikum.